0: You are listening to the Hill City Church podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples. Who walk Today, with God, as we continue our teaching series in the Christ Sermon Lord. on the Mount, we're jumping into a series of six sayings of Jesus that are interpretations, or you might say reinterpretations, of the Old Testament law. It all goes back to uh, the passage we looked at last Sunday. So, if you missed that, it's going to be an important principle and important teaching for the next month of teachings for us here. Essentially what Jesus is doing is he's quoting from the Old Testament and he's he's saying not abolishing it, but fulfilling it, fulfilling the true meaning. He's saying this is how you were taught, but this is what it really means. He's correcting shallow understandings of the Old Testament law. And the, The first example that Jesus gives, I think he chooses an easy one an obvious one. It's the commandment, the sixth commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, you shall not murder, right? That's one of the most obvious or evident evils in our world. We use it when we're trying to justify ourselves, don't we? We'll say, well, at least I didn't kill anybody. <laughs> or we'll say, well, nobody, at least nobody died, right? We'll, we'll try to use it as, okay, we all know that murder is, Wrong. And much of, most of Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5 centers around anger and hatred and reconciliation and those kind of things. And the title of this sermon is Anger. I think that's primarily what Jesus wants to talk about. And yet, in light of the cultural moment that we are in right now, as I prayed and studied through the text this week, I think we do need to talk about the sixth commandment as Christians. I think we do need to actually, before we jump into Matthew chapter five, actually talk about God's command to not murder. Obviously, gun violence is a big deal in America. Tuesday, if you're familiar with the events that happened on Tuesday, Tuesday, May 24th, Rob Elementary School in Texas, an 18-year-old, walked in and killed 19 children and two teachers. Uh, This was less than two weeks after another shooting by an 18-year-old in Buffalo, New York, where 10 people were killed. Uh, The day after that one, there was a shooting in a Taiwanese church where one died and another five were injured. There are over 200, that brings us up to over 200 mass shootings in America this year. In 2021, the total number was 693 shootings. So that's almost two a day, and the, day before, uh, the year before that, it was 611 shootings in 2020. This is a problem in America. It's getting worse year after year. Uh, 79% of all homicides in America are gun-related, and you compare that to another Western country in the UK, it's 4%. And the reason why, this is, this is murder, right? This is a direct application. This is, a common, uh, th- this is a, a common conversation that we're having in this cultural moment right now. And unfortunately, what I see so often happen on social media is um, instead of mourning with those who mourn, weeping with those who weep, uh, is I see people using this as an opportunity to say, this is why everybody should have a gun. And the reality of this is, is we, you know, I grew up in Alaska, Alaska, the last frontier, lots of guns, lots of hunting, lots of military bases up there even. Uh, obviously Idaho, very similar culture. And I was just kind of like, accepted that as like, that's just the way things are everywhere in the world. And then when I was 16 years old, I moved to Australia. I spent a year in Australia as a high schooler. And unless you've been to another cultural context, One of the things that you'll find is other countries are completely baffled by Americans' obsessions with everyone having a gun, with it being easily accessible for an 18-year-old to purchase semi-automatic weapons. And this is Memorial Day weekend. I understand I wanna honor um, our fallen veterans, both grandpas on both sides fought for freedom in various wars. I'm not even saying that law enforcement shouldn't have guns or that you shouldn't even be able to own a gun to go hunting or anything like that. But would we pause to actually ask ourselves the question, what if it was more difficult to purchase a deadly weapon? What if you had to, what, what if you had to jump through more hoops, get more training? It's easier to purchase a semi-automatic weapon than it is to get your driver's license because we know If you hand the keys to a car to a teenager and they get behind the wheel and they don't have training, people's lives are in danger. I read a post from Pete Gregg, he's a pastor in the UK. Uh, He talks about how in America, on average each year, there are 87 school shootings. And it's only, unfortunately for us, it's only the really deadly ones that make it into the news. He says this, children, speaking of children in UK, do not have to be taught active shooter lockdown drills at school. Our last school shooting was in 1996. Like, this is hard to believe as an American, is it not? Our last school shooting was in 1996, and before that was in 1850. We do not have to grieve these kinds of mass killings simply because we do not sell semi-automatic rifles indiscriminately. This does not make us less free. It simply makes our children safe in school. The reality is we get so caught up in our rights, specifically for Americans, I believe owning weapons has become somewhat of an idolatry, our rights that we're not as concerned as doing what's right in God's eyes. And the logic of more guns equals less gun violence, it's just It's not true in other countries, and we can actually look at that. To use, I I promise you, I'm not like an overtly political preacher, so if today's your first day, (laughs) please come back next week. (laughs) Where we're going to talk about sexuality next week. All right. (laughs) To use an example, on the other end... To use an example, on the other end of the political spectrum, something that's in the news right now, month of May, May 2nd, a document was leaked uh, that the Supreme Court had plans drawn out. It hasn't happened yet, but plans have been drawn out to overrule the decades old Roe v. Wade abortion Supreme Court decision. And similarly, social media is just a buzz. I mean, it's one of the things. It's a blessing and the curse, right? That you get to just see, kind of see where everyone's at on all of these issues, even if they're not at your dinner table. Uh, in 2019, according to, this, to the CDC, again, there's only 48 reporting states uh, out of 50, but there are 629,000 abortions in America in 2019. To put that into perspective, for every 10 live births, that's 1.95 abortions. So think about your average maternity ward at a hospital. For every five children that are being born, one child is being killed. Uh, I was really struck by reading John Mark Comer. Uh, his most recent book was the best book I read last year in 2021 is this book, Live No Lies. And uh, he spent some time talking about abortion in one of the chapters, not because it's a book about abortion, Uh, but because he's talking about how the cultural ethics and norms are always shifting. Do you notice that? What's commonly accepted today may be totally abhorrent tomorrow and vice versa, that they're always kind of cycling through because you can't decide right and wrong by democratic vote, right? And he's talking about this in reference to abortion and look at what he has to say. Honestly, I can't think of a more gut-wrenching example than abortion where the greatest infanticide in human history is recast as reproductive justice, the sheer nerve to use the word justice to refer to the dehumanization, it's not a baby, it's just fetus or it's just cells, and the destruction of millions of children is, is, is inexplicable. The moral reasoning here is just staggering in its complete break from logic and wisdom and even science, yet it has widespread social acceptance. In this chapter, he talks about how in America, 67% of early detection uh, children with Down syndrome are aborted. But in European countries, especially Scandinavian countries like Iceland, it's much higher. In fact, there was a news report with an interview from a doctor in Iceland saying that they cured Down syndrome. And what he means by that is they kill 100% of children who are detected with Down syndrome. And as I'm Reading that chapter, I'm weeping, tears down my face, as I'm praying for these families who lost their children last, this last week. I'm weeping. Does your heart break for the things that break God's heart? In scripture, you can find plenty of passages that support the idea that it's, it's not just a fetus, it's, it's a human being that's in the womb. One of the clearest examples comes the chapter immediately following Exodus chapter 20, the 10 commandments. Exodus chapter 21, you have this case, you can read it later if you want, where uh, there's this, it, it seems like an odd law, but it's if there's two men that get into a fight and they accidentally stumble into a pregnant woman, whatever happens to the baby the, 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 the penalty is that same thing has to happen to the person who harmed the baby. So it's where we get the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. So if you accidentally kill an unborn child in Israel, uh, it's a death penalty for you. And there's plenty of other laws about accidental killings. Like if you were to chop wood and the ax head flies off and you accidentally kill someone in the woods, that's not the death penalty. But if it's an unborn child, it is. Wayne Grudem says it like this. God placed a higher premium on protecting the life of unborn, the unborn child and the pregnant mother than protecting the life of anybody else in Israelite society. And I just wanna speak for a moment. Both, both of these are tense issues, obviously. Statistically speaking, there's probably women in this room who've had an abortion. And I don't know what your situation is or was, but God does and he sees you where you're at, and I hope that you know that God loves you. He has grace for you. He has forgiveness for you. But we do not find ourselves justified by justifying ourselves and redefining good and evil for ourselves. We have to find that cleansing, that healing, the foot of the cross, and allow ourselves to confess those things to God and allow him to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so I hope you hear me talking about this moral principle and not maybe condemning you, because Christ Jesus not, did not come to condemn the world, but that but the world might be saved through him. And I hope that you can, I hope you can hear through some of the things that I'm talking about right now. But similarly, those are two opposing political issues, and I see Christians picking sides on each one of them on social media, Once again, would we be less concerned with our rights and more concerned with doing what's right in God's eyes? And the reason why I bring these two things up is I often see Christians being more formed or shaped in regards to their ethics or their worldview by the popular culture or political ideologies than by Christ Jesus himself. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does not mix his words. He gives his authoritative teaching on human ethics. And that's what we're gonna see, and we have to wrestle with these things. And my, my, I would just challenge you, would you be open to humbling yourself before the God of the universe and what his son has to say about human life? And now that I've made everyone in the room angry, (laughs) let's talk about Jesus's teaching on anger. (laughs) Think twice before you email me, think twice. This week, don't harbor anger in your heart. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is, what? Angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to, count, to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to To the hell of fire! What you see here is you see Jesus in in classic fashion quoting the Old Testament, but the the quotation isn't actually the full uh, the full quotation he uses isn't actually found in Scripture anywhere. The first part of it is it's in the Ten Commandments and, and other places as well. You shall not murder. Obvious, right? But then there's this second part of it, which we have reason to believe that perhaps this is the justification for not murdering that the Pharisees and the scribes used. Why shouldn't you murder? You'll be liable to judgment, aka don't kill because you don't wanna get in trouble. Click it or tick it, right? It's the same logic. Why do do you need to wear a seat buckle so you don't get in trouble for not wearing a seat buckle? It's like, that's the, the logic that the Pharisees were using on why you should not kill people. Is because you, if somebody finds you out, then it's, the cap, it's capital punishment for you as opposed to a much more ancient reasoning for why we don't harm other people it comes from Genesis chapter nine, verse six. Before the Mosaic covenant, God makes a covenant with Noah. And this is what it says in Genesis nine. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his, everyone say it, own image this is called the imago Day. Humans are made in the image of God. We don't shed blood because there's life in the blood. There's life in the blood, there's inherent value. Human beings are not just a, a little bit higher than the animals, right? It matters, there's a sanctity of life. Christians should have the highest perspective and view of the human soul, of the human life than any other group on planet Earth. And how often are we f- kind of flippantly talking about the life and death of children in schools, of, of people with guns, of, of, un- of the unborn? There's life in the blood. It's the Imago day, And what Jesus is doing here is, you know, he's speaking to the Pharisees who are highly legalistic. And they would say, well, I've never actually killed anyone, so I guess I'm good, right? I fulfilled that Commandment, And Jesus takes that, he says, okay, there's that obvious and evident, you shall not murder, but I wanna, I wanna actually pull it back a few layers. What's the sin behind murder? It's an unrighteous anger. It's a hatred. I think of the very first murder in human history. Cain kills his brother Abel because he's angry at him, right? And so Jesus says, okay, there's, yes, certainly you shall not murder, but let's go back to you shall not even murder. Be angry with a brother or sister in your heart. Don't even insult them. Don't even call them names. Here's why, because hatred is murder with your mind. That's what hatred is in its essence. It's murder with your mind. And you might feel just as good as the Pharisees felt about themselves. Well, I've, you know, I've never maybe even been violent towards someone. Have you thought this thought before? You're dead to me. That person, they're as good as dead to me or I wish they were dead. You wished harm. You had revenge fantasies about them. You rehearsed in your mind while you're laying awake at night the perfect argument where you just belittled them in front of everyone. is anyone else or is this just me? (laughs) You have bitterness, unforgiveness, grudges, and there's some people who are angry in these explosive ways. I'm a one on the Enneagram. It's part of the anger triad, if you're familiar with that. So I'm fairly in touch with my anger, and I, I'm aware of that. And, uh, and so those are the kinds of people who are more explosive, shouting, sometimes even in some cases, you know, violent, like I gotta, uh, you know, if there's a wall, there's a hole punched in it, right? That kind of stuff. And there's some people who feel that they're fine with this because they just are angry in a different way. It's implosive. It's not the bomb going off, it's the, it's the slow burn, it's the silent treatment, it's the cold shoulder, it's the passive aggressiveness. And what Jesus is saying is to, to have that in your heart, just as guilty, it's, it, it's severe and extreme language that Jesus uses for saying to even call someone you fool, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Because the reality is we could say, well, who's gonna find out, right? I mean, you would go to jail if someone found you out of a crime, like murder, right? But who's going to find you out? I mean, if it's in your heart, no one's like scanning you to see like, your internal motives, except for God, except for the Holy Spirit. First Samuel chapter 16, verse seven. This is a principle we're gonna see true in the rest of Jesus' teachings in Matthew five. So take note of this principle. It says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The author of Hebrews says that God's word is living and active and so sharp that it cuts through your bone and your sinew. It's not just about the physical external acts all the way to your heart, all the way to your inner motives. And you might not go to jail for holding a grudge against that person for a decade, but you are going to have to stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords on judgment day. And, and there, this, this needs to sober us up to say, well, I've never done that, so I'm good. Well, we're not justified just because you've you know, not broken one aspect of the law. What Jesus is doing is he's intensifying this idea. Now, we have to ask the question, this is a natural question to ask. Is there ever a time to get angry? Or is Jesus, when he says, don't even be angry with a brother or sister, is he condemning all kinds of anger or all times to be angry? And uh, I think it's, it's quite easy to say that he's not because Jesus got Angry. I mean, read Matthew chapter twenty-one, where Jesus is in the temple and he's he's flipping tables. A lot of people love this passage right now. Anyways, like, <laughs> Jesus would flip tables. I can flip, you know. And he's flipping tables and he's casting out the money lenders. And there's corruption, and they've turned you know a, a house of prayer into a den of robbers. And he's not like smiling that whole time. He's he's angry in that moment. Or how about? When Jesus says, if you say, you fool, you'll be in danger of the fires of hell. And in Matthew 23, 17, Jesus literally says, you blind fools. Did he catch himself? You know, it's like, (laughs) what about that? Now, there's a difference. And this is why the solution to anger, as we'll see in a second, is not just to never be angry. Because there is, we're gonna call a righteous anger and an unrighteous anger a personal kind of grudge between you and someone else. When Jesus faced personal attacks, ridicule, name-calling, violence, and even death on the cross, how did he face those things? As the suffering servant. Did he stand up for his rights or did he lay down his life for the benefit of others, right? That's his posture there. Now, when Jesus was angry, you can can run it through this test of four different things. D.A. Carson helps us out. This is what he says. His anger, speaking of Jesus's anger, erupts, not out of personal pique that's like your own kind of personal problem with someone else, but out of outrage at injustice, sin, unbelief, and exploitation of others. Take those four things, injustice, sin, unbelief, and exploitation of others. How often is your anger at those kind of things? Or is it because that person looked at you wrong? Or they offended you? Or you read their email and you misinterpreted it, right? How often is it, it, are our things personality conflicts or even personal vendettas that we have against the other person? Injustice, sin, unbelief, exploitation of others, which by the way, one of those times that Jesus is so fierce in his teaching is when it comes to harming the least of these. We need to take the advice of James, the brother of Jesus, and James 1, 19 through 20 says this. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why? Why? For the anger of man, what we're gonna call an unrighteous anger, Right? God knows things, the situations perfectly, does not produce the righteousness of God or the righteous anger of God. It's easy for us to say, well, of course my anger is a righteous anger. I wouldn't be so angry if it wasn't. And I would just challenge you to check your motives, to check, not that we need to shut down all anger altogether because the reality is your righteous anger may in fact be God's calling on your life to do something. It may be God feeding that hunger and thirsting for righteousness. So often, if you wanna find out what you're passionate for, the good works that God has created you so that you would walk in them, just ask yourself, what is the injustice or the sin or the exploitation of others of the least of these that you get the most fired up about and what can you do about it? And that's a good thing. That's a godly thing. Things of anger that you have are God's righteous Anger, because if it's just you're angry at this person because they personally wronged you, compare yourself to the suffering servant example of Christ Jesus. Let's continue through Jesus' teaching. He's going to give us two examples. The first one comes in Matthew 5:23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. And first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer. Your gift. This is uh, a crazy example. So think about this for a moment. Jesus is preaching uh, to a crowd of people on the Sermon on the Mount. There may be people from Jerusalem. So there's the temple in Jerusalem. That's where you would bring your your gift to the altar. But there is many people who did not live close to Jerusalem. So if you lived in Jerusalem, you might offer uh, sin or guilt offerings. You would bring an animal to sacrifice for atonement for your sins and your family a number of times a year. If you lived outside of there, like in in Galilee, You might only show up to Jerusalem one or two times a year to do this. So this is like a special occasion time of worship that you would go and do this. So you've made the arrangements. You have a whole day made out of it. You've got your goat. You show up, and it's a long line. You're like, ugh, you know? And then you're standing there, standing there. It's finally your time to offer this animal as an atoning sacrifice on the altar. And then a person's face flashes through your mind and it's your neighbor from back home, and you wronged them. You, did some, you, you sinned against them. What Jesus is saying is you stop everything right there, and you go and you make it right. This is serious. Here's a, in a little a math equation for us to remember that hidden sin plus worship equals hypocrisy. It doesn't equal righteousness. This is a classic problem that the Pharisees faced. They felt like because they kept some elements of the law, specifically religious activities, I'll just go to two church services next Sunday. I'll give a little bit extra money, right? I'll sing louder during the last worship song because I felt bad during the sermon, right? It, I'll, I'll just do this these religious activities and it'll make up for this hidden, this unconfessed, this unrepented of sin in my life. It doesn't lead to righteousness, it leads to hypocrisy. It leads to acting one way and actually living another way. Uh, to quote from Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, when Saul, the king of Israel, has done this. He's disobeyed, but he's offered a, sa- a sacrifice because he thinks that'll make up for it. Samuel says that classic line, to obey is better than to sacrifice. What God actually desires is your heart. He wants you to follow him. Or in Isaiah 29, the prophets, by the way, consistently criticize the nation of Israel for doing some elements of the law, keeping the letter of the law, but totally missing the heart of it. In Isaiah 29, 13, it says that these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so Jesus says, stop everything. Get out of church if you need to and go make things right. Interestingly, what we see is the antidote for anger here the antidote for unrighteous anger. And it's not repression. It's not like trying to, sh- to shut the, the, the switch off on your anger. The antidote for anger is reconciliation. And that's maybe a little unexpected, isn't it? The antidote for anger is not just you know, try to be less angry. It's reconciliation, not repression. And that's because behind all of our unrighteous anger, or maybe most of our unrighteous angry. Uh, anger, there's a name or a face. There's a person. because actually the exact same logic of, as why you shouldn't murder someone. You don't murder someone, you don't kill someone, because they're made in the image of God. You don't murder someone in your mind or your heart because they're made in the image of God. It's the same principle, We gotta see value, we've gotta look past the problem that that person has caused us and see the person behind it. Value the relationship. There's a name, there's a face, and if you see that name and face and you just have rage, you're seething with poison and bitterness towards them. What you have to do is take a step back and look through the eyes of Christ who sees possibly a lost sheep, a potential son or daughter, someone who for sure is created in the image of God, who has inherent and intrinsic value and worth. And as you move towards reconciliation, what happens is the anger, the root of the problem actually begins to dissipate. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 says something very similar. Notice all the synonyms that Paul uses. It's called stacking. It's you know a literary device to make a point. All the synonyms for anger. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Did I miss any? Yeah. Along with all malice. He's like, let me think of all the different types of anger implosive, explosive, beneath the surface. Let all that kind of anger be put away from you. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The gospel empowers and expects us to be forgiving people, to show mercy, to show grace, to extend forgiveness. And in Christ's example that he gives us in Matthew chapter five, it's really interesting. Uh, You're guilty in the example. Do you see that? Right At first when we think of you shall not murder, we, we think of, okay, I'm not supposed to be holding a grudge against someone who wrongs me. And then in the example, who's the guilty one? Me. You're at the place of worship and you realize you wronged a brother or sister. And I wonder if Jesus is is almost foreshadowing to the golden rule, which you'll discuss in uh, Matthew chapter seven, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And he's asking that question, put yourself in that person's shoes. I mean, have you ever had that happen where someone wronged you and you wished that they would call you and totally fess up? Has this happened before? You know it's never gonna happen, but you're like, you, you think about it, you're like, if I was them, I'd be so quick. I'd be so quick to get coffee and hug it out or whatever. And I think that's why Jesus is giving that example, saying, Would you? Or would you just offer that sacrifice and pretend like everything's fine? Would you sweep it under the rug? We've gotta actually embody, it's difficult, it's crazy to embody this do unto others as you would have them do unto you when it comes to reconciliation and resolving conflict. But we have to be willing to do it. We're ambassadors of reconciliation. We are called to be peacemakers. One of my favorite quotes from a book I read on conflict resolution, a great book, by the way, called Resolving Everyday Conflict. If you've been around, you know I've quoted this before. I'm I'm gonna quote this a million more times. Even if I'm 2% responsible, everyone show me two fingers for a conflict, I'm 100% responsible for my 2%. Somebody write that down. Even if I'm 2% responsible, (laughs) here's what we do. Here's what we do. Well, I'm only 2% responsible. Ball's in their court. They're 98% responsible. They need to reach out. They need to come clean. They need to apologize. Not according to Christ Jesus. Even if you're 2% responsible, own it. Own your 2%. Own it. Because it's probably more like 22% anyways. (laughs) Probably is. And just own it. Man, how often have you longed to hear that other person say those words, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I messed up. Say those words yourself. Create an environment in your marriage where you say those words. I apologized yesterday to my two year old and my four year old. Do it. If you think that you haven't sinned at all last week, just ask the Holy Spirit to show you some of those things. And then own it. Own the 2%. Here's the thing that we learned from Jesus about conflict resolution conflict resolution is never convenient. It's like the, the least convenient time. Maybe you've already killed the goat and you're about to offer it on the altar and your hands are bloody and you're like, can I leave this here? I'll be back tomorrow. Like it's like, it's this crazy inconvenient thing to do. But the reality is it will never be convenient. It will never be convenient. Well, I'm pretty busy, I gotta you know, yard work and gotta wash my hair and the new Obi-Wan Kenobi series is out, gotta watch that, you know? And it's like, all of, you, you will always have a reason why you should not reach out to that person and find reconciliation. You'll always be able to come up with an excuse. And I would just say, stop making excuses and make reconciliation a priority in your life. If you can't let it go, then go to the person. If you can't, let it go, and, and the reality is, there are some situations, this isn't to say that every little miscommunication or misinterpretation or personality conflict that we need to be kind of like hyper-reconciling, does that make sense? Like making a big deal out of something that maybe isn't that big of a deal, because the reality is, if you can get over it and let it go, and God has forgiven you and Christ Jesus with such extravagant grace that you're like, you know what, I legitimately can just show grace for that person, maybe they just have been having a bad week, do that, do that. But if you legitimately cannot do that, and maybe you said, no, no, I, I'm over it. I, it's just gonna be like six months till I can actually talk to that person. No, you know, I'm, I'm over it, but I just haven't been sleeping well because I've been like dreaming, like kind of like mean things towards that person. <laughs> Like, be honest with yourself. If you cannot let it go, then go to the person. I like to say it like this. Stop talking to the person in your head and talk to the person in person. Oh, instead, that's a good rhyme. That's a great one. We'll use that for next time. It's great. Talk to them in person. Send a text message. Call them on the phone. Like, I'm being so serious right now. Tomorrow, first... Get coffee first thing Monday morning. Now there's wisdom in cooling off and you don't have to like, the moment that you're raging angry, yeah, we gotta settle this right, like there's wisdom in how to go about these kind of things. But the reality is we've gotta stop making excuses for allowing this kind of bitterness and malice and wrath and anger and clamor and every other synonym that you can think of, just sit in our community as a church. This is destroying churches across our country. This is destroying families right now. Get serious about reconciliation. The gospel is a reconciliation story. And if we are truly people who've received the gospel and changed by the gospel, it has to influence how we see the image of God in the person, even your worst enemy. The goal is the relationship, not being right. So, I'm not gonna promise you that it'll always be effective because the reality is it takes two people to reconcile. But so far as it concerns you, live at peace with all. That's what the Apostle Paul wrote. So, so far as it concerns you, even if it only 2% concerns you, if you approach that situation, you reach out humbly, you have the end goal is restoring the relationship, not being right, you don't get together with that person so that you can prove your point further, so that you can win the argument. But if the goal is the relationship, then, and you're seeking the Holy Spirit, and you're, you've understood the gospel and God's grace towards you, I can almost guarantee, not that it's 100% effective, but I can almost guarantee, in Matthew 5, verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So this is a little bit of a different example. So in this example, you owe someone a lot of money. Maybe you've stolen from them, you've defrauded them, you've, for whatever reason, you owe them a lot of money. You're guilty again, (laughs) both examples, like we're supposed to envision ourselves as the guilty one. I think Jesus is trying to teach us with that. And essentially in the ancient world, if you didn't pay up, you, it's not like you would just get like little letters from debt collectors and be like, oh, garbage, you know. <laughs> you go to jail until the debt is paid off. So if, you're fan, if, if someone isn't able to help pay that debt off, you might die in prison. This is insane, okay? And so Jesus is saying, so imagine you're in that situation, and you don't have enough money to pay this person off. Here's what you do. Before you get into the courtroom, you wanna like, hey, real quick, before we're in there, I know I'm guilty, totally own it. I'm gonna own my 100% on this one, not the two, I'm gonna own the 100%. Can we make a deal? Can Can we work this out? Do that before you get in the judgment seat because once you're in that place, Jesus says, You'll be found guilty, you'll be thrown in prison, and you'll, you'll face it to the last penny. Here's the point, reconciliation is urgent. It's incredibly urgent, that's the point. You're like literally on the way to the courtroom, and Jesus is like, you better find that person and resolve this with that person. It's urgent, and too often we're so almost relaxed or casual when it comes to reconciliation, because for us, I mean, if we were honest, relationships are maybe a little bit disposable in our modern culture. Big deal. They unfriended me. I've got a thousand more on Facebook. Like, they're kind of disposable. We're kind of transient. We're, we're hyper individualistic. Maybe we don't have the value of the other person in mind. And so, what Jesus says is it's urgent. You've got to do it. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 4 26 through 27. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Notice he doesn't say never be angry. Because like we said, it's not repression. There are righteous forms of anger. But he says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to who? To the devil. This is one of the most pressing reasons why reconciliation is so incredibly urgent. Because the devil is going to use unrighteous anger in the hearts of the people of God. He's gonna use those things. Two main ways that the devil uses this unrighteous, unholy pent up aggression in our hearts. The first one is the devil is gonna use that as an opportunity to get you to sin. You might say, well, I'm the victim here. They've wronged me, I'm the victim here. And you, you harbor this bitterness, this anger, you do that long enough, you can't keep that stuff inside. It's only a matter of time. It comes out as a word, it comes out as a mean tweet, it comes out, in some cases, in violence, it comes out in your behavior, it comes out in gossip, it comes out, and let me tell you, in Christian communities, in nasty ways, the devil is using that as an opportunity to get Christians to sin. I've faced it, I've experienced it, I know I've been guilty of it at times, and you have too. So what are we gonna do? It's urgent. I got to do something about this. I've got to talk to the person. I've got I've to gotta go to them. I've got to make this right. Now, we, again, we don't want to be legalistic, right? So it isn't to say that someone you're angry with someone and it's like 11.59 p.m. and you're like, the sun's already down, you know? And it's like, ah. But don't let the sun go down. Like it's, it's urgent. Make a priority. Make a big deal of this. The second way that the devil is going to use our unrighteous anger as an opportunity is as as an opportunity to make you not sin, but to suffer. The devil's gonna use that as an opportunity to make you suffer. Second Star Wars reference of the day, you ready? Fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering, there we go. Master Yoda right there, okay? It's not scripture, but hate leads to suffering. And I, I think this is actually a very key insight. Because what we often think is we think, oh, I'm just going to be so mad or angry at this person or the silent treatment or the passive aggressive or fill in the blank with whatever your unhealthy anger, you know, pick, pick your choice, right? Whatever fits you. Oh, I'm, gonna get, I'm getting them just by being so mad at them, but it's by having hate. The reality is it's, they're sleeping fine at night. Did you know that? You're the one who's staying up because you're the one with high blood pressure. You're the one who is suffering. And the devil is gonna use your unresolved, unhealthy, unrighteous anger to make you suffer. And what forgiveness is doing is it's leading to freedom. Forgiving someone else is not only just leading to them being free, it's actually leading to your own freedom, your own freedom. And then the second relationship that I, I think we can't miss here in Matthew 5, 25 through 26 is we must come to terms quickly with God. I mean, let's think about this hypothetical scenario that Jesus gives us one more time. You owe a debt that you can never pay. You have no ability to free yourself. You're 100% guilty and you need, you're, you're totally dependent and reliant on somebody else to show you mercy. Does that sound like a situation that we are familiar with? This is all of us without Christ Jesus. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, this is all of us, if not for God's richness of mercy, his loving kindness in our lives. And the reality is, if you are here today and you've never responded to the good news of the gospel, I would urge you, I would urge you to come to terms quickly with God. Imagine that you knew if you were to, if you had your accuser there on the way to judgment and you knew that you had heard stories from other people who had owed this guy so much money, he's so merciful. You've gotta talk to him, he's so merciful, he's so forgiving. And you're standing there and you're like, you know what? I I I think I can hold up in court. I think I can face Whatever judgment the court wants to throw at me, I think I can face it on my own. And I would just say to you, come to terms quickly with God. Today can be the day of salvation for you. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. Think of this language that the apostle Paul uses for the church. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. And when he died on the cross for the sins of the world, he wasn't dying for his own unrighteousness for he was perfect and righteous. He was dying for you and for me. And picture right there, this this insurmountable debt that when we sin against the God of the universe, the the anger, the wrath, the judgment we are inviting upon ourselves. And through Christ Jesus, imagine that record of debt being nailed right there with him on the cross. And through his resurrection from the dead, we might be raised up into a new life with him as well. And I just wanna invite you today to say yes to Jesus Christ to pray and ask God to forgive your sins and to lead your life and for you to experience reconciliation with God. This is the most important relationship that we need reconciliation, is our reconciliation with our Father in heaven. So we'll have, uh, at the end of service, we'll have members of our prayer team down front. You can invite someone to, to pray with you, to walk alongside you, and I would invite you to say yes to Jesus through baptism. It's the way Jesus instructs us to respond in faith. It symbolizes getting dunked under, dying to the old life and being raised back up into a new life in him. So what are we gonna do, church? Are we gonna hold bitterness and grudges? Are we gonna fight for our rights or are we gonna seek humbly to be slow to speak, quick to listen, to understand what is right in God's eyes? Are we gonna be ambassadors of reconciliation? Are we gonna be the peacemakers that God has called us to be? We're gonna see the image of God, even in our enemies. And we're gonna love those people like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace, your mercy on our lives. We thank you for how rich your mercy is. That record of debt is something that none of us could pay. We thank you that you desire relationship with us. You desire for healing but you also desire for reconciliation with the people in our lives. God, you want us to send that text message. Holy Spirit, would you move us this week to phone calls, to sit down meetings? Would you move us this week to actual steps of reconciliation? And God, would there be healing in our families, in our uh, marriages? Would there be healing in our church community? Would, Would there be healing in our city? And God, would you bring healing in our land? We pray this in the powerful name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.